Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, good morning. Uh, like, like Jean said, uh, my name is Tim. I'm really excited and honored to be preaching with you, preaching this morning to sharing God's word with you. Um, and yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, Ecclesiastes this morning. Now, I first read Ecclesiastes when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. See, Mom, I told you. <laughs> Ecclesiastes seemed to affirm and validate all of my teenage angst. Um, you know, this is, uh, this, is, this is stupid, right? Nothing matters, whatever, whatever, right? Ugh. And this says a lot more about me as a teenager than it does about the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I read it again in college and in seminary, and then it was, it was more confusing and difficult. I had trouble reconciling it with the rest of what I was reading in Scripture and really studying at those times. Uh, I could see the immaturity of my teenage interpretation, but I wasn't really sure what to do with it. I read it again in 2020 and 2021, and again and again and again, and it was painful, it was frustrating, but it was uh, cathartic to me. It was God's Word, and God spoke through it. So today I want to talk about Ecclesiastes and how it helped me through changes that were beyond my control. Um, 
Ecclesiastes is part of the Old Testament's wisdom literature. It goes along with Proverbs and Job and the Song of Songs. Uh, Ecclesiastes is almost a sequel, sort of a response to the book of Proverbs. You're probably familiar with Proverbs, which has uh, great short, quick statements uh, that are intended to instruct us in wise living and wisdom. Um, and they are, they're simple, they're easy to remember, and they seem very straightforward. A leads to B. And Ecclesiastes is there to sort of serve as a foil to that. It has a, somewhat of a negative function. And, you know, even as we heard the Scripture this morning, it seems kind of a downer a little bit. Um, Ecclesiastes is there to, to remind us that Proverbs, though they are sources of wisdom in God's Word to us, Proverbs are not promises. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project refers to this as the myth of religious fulfillments. We are always tempted to believe that if we do X and Y, uh, then God will do Z. And if I, here's a proverb, if I follow it, I will, no matter what, because I did the right thing, receive what I am due. And we all know from our experiences in life that that does not always happen. Ecclesiastes is here to remind us of that, to affirm that truth, and to challenge us with it, with it. But ultimately, its purpose is the same as the book of Proverbs and the other ones. It is to teach us wisdom, to teach us how to live well, how to think well. Traditionally, the book has uh, been understood to be written by King Solomon, um, though it's never refer he never refers to himself by name in the book, uh, refers to himself as the, as the teacher, as the preacher. We're going to go with, with teacher. Um, so let's look at the first, these verses again, the ones that we just saw. Um, there is a repetition of the word uh, vanity, or if, I don't know what translation you might have in front of you. It could be vanity, it could be meaninglessness. Uh, it might, if you have a more, um, a more esoteric translation or more a paraphrase, it might say uh, breath or wind. The the repetition of this is all within the context of the natural world. We talk about the wind, we talk about the water, um, the sun rising and setting, things happening over and over and over and over again. And what the author is trying to do with that repetition in this particular section is to remind us about God's creation story in the first seven days, in the, in the, in the first chapter of Genesis. In the first chapter of Genesis, God speaks with purpose. His words have an immediate and awesome effect. What he, what he speaks is created. He call, sees what He has created, and He calls it good. He moves on to the next day, and He does the same thing. And there's a beautiful sense of progress and beauty and purpose that God is coming into the formless void of non-creation, and He is making a good, beautiful creation where there was nothing before. But Ecclesiastes and the teacher recognizes that that sense of purpose has been lost for us. We don't feel always that the things we do have results. The turning of the winds, the rising and setting of the sun, it rises, it sets, it goes back. It rises, it sets, it goes back. Why? To what end? To what purpose? Paul in Romans says that creation waits with eager longing for the revelation, the revealing of the Son of God, for creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This idea that creation is subject to its futility, that the natural world and that our experience in it is not what it's supposed to be, is not unique to Ecclesiastes, though it is probably most strongest in, in Ecclesiastes. We see it in the New Testament. We see it there in the book of Romans. It's as if there's a wheel spinning. A car has been stuck, and the wheel's just spinning and spinning and spinning. A wheel should move you forward, but it doesn't. It just spins. All things, it says, are tired. The Hebrew word, there's a Hebrew word that gets used a lot here. And so when I say meaningless, when I say vanity, as we said in the translation, the Hebrew word is hevel. Let's try to say that with me. Hevel. You can hold up your hand in front of your face and take a deep breath. You want to try that? So did you feel your breath on your hand? It was there. Then it was gone. That's what hevel means. Hevel means breath, smoke, vapor. And you can see there's a, this great graphic from the, the Bible Project. If you are more interested in sort of the, well, the uh, overall layout of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes and what makes it tick, I cannot recommend enough the Bible Project's, I think they have like three videos on it actually, but just one of them would do. Um, yeah, I'm drawing from this larger image here. But if we could look at Hevel, the word is used 38 times throughout the book. It means literally smoke or breath, but it can mean temporary, fleeting. It can refer to an enigma, something that is very difficult to understand, or a paradox, or a contradiction, something that just doesn't make sense. The sun rises, the sun sets, it returns to its course. Things are happening over and over again but seemingly without purpose or meaning. And we can see in the, in the smoke there that that hand is trying to grasp the words beauty, justice, goodness. These are themes that if we had time to look at the entire book, the preacher will, and teacher will return to again and again and again. Beauty is beautiful, but try to grasp it and it's gone. Justice is worth seeking and is right and is good, and yet we know all too well that justice is not always done. All things are hevel. All things are weary, empty, ephemeral. One author that I'll quote in a moment uses the term absurd. So many of the things that the teacher calls hevel are things, yes, that we might call contradictions, combinations of statements or ideas that do not fit together, that do not make sense. He praises the value of wisdom later on in the book, but then laments the fact that wisdom does not always lead to reward. He is confronting us throughout the book, but especially here in these first verses, with these contradictions, with these enigmas, and he doesn't seek to explain them away or to harmonize them together they are what they are, and wisdom requires us to recognize them. The teacher uses them the way a shepherd would use a goad, a sharp point on the end of a staff. You poke a sheep with to get the sheep to move in the other direction. He looks really happy about it. Uh, they mentioned earlier that I have some cats. Um, if you attempted to uh, goad a cat to go in a certain direction. The cat is not going to do that. The cat's going to spin around 
and it's going to see the pointy end of that stick, and it's going to just wail on it. It's not going to go where you want it to go. Similarly, like if you have a dog, you can, you can point to something, and the dog will see what you've pointed at, maybe, and will go and, and get it. If you point to something, the cat doesn't look what you're pointing at. The cat just looks at the end of your finger. Similarly, similarly for us, uh, when we experience the contradictions in life, and they poke us, our instinct is to turn to the thing that has poked us, the thing that has upset us, the thing that is in our way, to become very focused on it and attempt to break it apart, to move it, to get it out of there. But again, that's, that's not the goal of Ecclesiastes. The goal of Ecclesiastes is to use those very things to reorient us and to point us in a different direction. Here's what um, the biblical scholar uh, Michael V. Fox says about this. He, being the teacher, observes the superiority of wisdom, then bewails its treatment. He insists on divine judgment, then complains of the existence of injustices. The relation between the two propositions is, this is true, and that is true. And it is this conjunction that constitutes and reveals the world's absurdity. Okay, this probably sounds very philosophical, but we really do deal with th things like this every day. I deal with things like this every day as I attempt to parent my three children. Some of you might be fam familiar with uh, Good Inside and uh, Dr. Becky, uh, who often reminds us as parents when we're talking to our children that two things can be true. If you're talking to a baby, you can say, you know, two things are true. Your bottle is not ready yet, and you really want it right now. I know, waiting is hard. Or talking to a tween, two things are true. You, you want your own Instagram account, and, and I'm not comfortable with that yet. I know that's annoying, and I'd love to talk about other ways to give you more freedom. Two things are true. There is a boundary, and there is the fact that I do love you. And often to our children, those things do not, cannot both be true at the same time. It is a paradox. It is a frustration. As adults, we experience this as, as well, whether it's in uh, the work that we do, uh, whether it's in the relationships that we have. Uh, the most, one of the most common contradictions that we experience maybe is unrequited love. There's two, two things are true. I love and care for another person, they do not reciprocate love and care for me in return. That is true sometimes. And that kind of contradiction, that kind of challenge is very difficult, difficult to move through. <laughs> in the end, this is what Ecclesiastes, how Ecclesi the book of Ecclesiastes finishes. The words of the wise are like goads, like those pointy sticks, and like nails firmly fixed of the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so, the big idea from Ecclesiastes is because the world is full of hevel, of vapor, of breath, of contradiction and enigma, we have very little agency and control. Nonetheless, our duty is to obey God 
and our hope is in God's judgment. I want to tell you about how I experienced a contradiction like this in my own life, how reading Ecclesiastes helped me move forward from that, um, and how God has met me and has taught me. I, um, see, I always wanted to be a pastor. My father was a pastor. I felt called to ministry when I was a teenager, maybe 13 or 14 years old. I went to a big youth conference, and there was a, you know, Francis Chan was speaking, and someone, I don't, I don't know, someone else, and they were, they, if you feel, you know, if you feel like you're called to ministry, why don't you come on up here, and we're going to pray for you, and, and I did that, and I have been involved in some sort of organized church ministry since I was in high school, and all told, as a pastor, I, I've served about eight years of vocational ministry at three different churches. Um, I, I love it. I loved it. It was the thing that brought purpose and meaning to my life. It was the thing that made the most sense to me. It was the thing that was worth doing. If, as a cynical teenager, I wanted to be like, oh, this is not important, that's not important, I don't have to care about this. Ministry was one of the things that I couldn't do that to. Now, I, this is important. I'm going to do this. But in the years of 2020 and 2021, my, my experience of doing ministry really changed quite dramatically. And the words of Ecclesiastes that lamented the futility of toil made sense to me for the first time. Now, I don't necessarily want to share too many personal details about all this. Not all of them are mine. I, I was the pastor of a church not far from here, and we even have relationships with folks in that church. And, um, but it was, you know, it was during a season of life that was quite challenging, and all of us have stories of incredibly difficult moments and experiences from during the pandemic and during those few years. My experience was that I felt like a failure. Nothing I did in my ministry, in my leadership of my church, felt like it was the right decision or that it was appreciated. Um, if, if we made a decision about whether it was masks or, or gathering or not gathering, it was, it was always either uh, too careful or not careful enough. Uh, if we made a decision about how to talk about injustice in the world, uh, it was either we weren't doing enough, we were ignoring what was really going on, or uh, we had sort of embraced some secular view and we were distracting from the gospel. And it was exhausting. And I know, because I've spoken to many pastors, that they've had very similar experiences. And it, it, just, it felt like I could not do the right thing. It felt like I was a wheel spinning and not getting any traction, not moving in any direction, working and working, but not accomplishing anything. To sum up my, my experience, uh, I, read an, I read an article in May of 2021 by Russell Moore, uh, who himself left the, the ministry that he worked in for, for decades at, during this period of time, but he describes pastors like myself reaching out to him, expressing those things. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I feel like I have failed. I cannot, uh, I cannot win. And so what he, what he says is, as he describes the experience of these pastors, and I feel like this describes me to some extent, we are doing so. We are engaging with culture. We are leading in difficult times in a time when, as 
Author Amanda Ripley calls them, conflict entrepreneurs are turning any biblical teaching on the sin of partiality and injustice into charges of subversion and liberalism. It is surreal to be told that you are denying the sufficiency of Scripture, not despite the fact that you believe in the whole Bible, but because of it. Now, I'm not, I am not a, a martyr, and I am not without my faults. In fact, my reaction to I, what I believe were often unfair criticisms was to be angry and often to be defensive. And I can recognize now that this experience was a goad poking and prodding me. We're good. But I was too focused on the stick and not what it was pointing me to. Like the cat, I want to smack that thing. Get it out of here. Break this. I want to solve this problem. I want to figure out how this fits together. How is it possible that doing the work of ministry and serving God can feel like toil and feel meaningless? That doesn't make sense. That can't be true. So I am going to fight that problem until I fix it. That didn't work. did not work at all. And so, like I said, I read Ecclesiastes again and again, and slowly but surely, I got the picture. Um, I, I cannot solve this problem. This problem is what it is. I need to turn away from the thing that is poking me and move in the direction that God is leading me. Um, ultimately, in the end, this situation was beyond my control. Uh, during this, this challenging period of time, my, my church shrunk uh, in size and downsized, and I didn't, so I didn't quit out of anger, and I didn't get fired unfairly. None of those things happened. Those are the things that were consuming my thoughts. None of those things happened. In the end, the church shrunk, and my job just didn't exist anymore. I had as many months as I needed to move and find a new job. I had a lot of support and care. That period in my life was going to be over no matter what I did. I, here I am now. How Jesus comes into this and gives some meaning to this frustrating and exhausting experience is, is this. And I think that this is what Jesus can do for anyone. But Jesus doesn't, just like, the, just like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, Jesus isn't here to make our problems just go away or dismiss them. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no. look, it works fine. No, I, I think that a better way of imagining it is that Jesus, uh, as, a, as a good improver, yes ands our contradictions and challenges. Jesus sees, yes, your work is holy, is good but it is also heaven. Yes, and you do not have to be a pastor to be my disciple. See, I, I would always go back to the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, where Jesus calls his disciples, um, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, they're casting their nets into the sea. Jesus sees them, he calls out to them, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And this is how Jesus yes-ands 
the toil of work? Jesus says, yes. Work is necessary. It can bring profit. It can bring satisfaction, but it's not a guarantee. So, I am here to give you new work. I'm here to recontextualize what work is and what means. I'm here to point you to what does matter and what does last because, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, nothing of this world truly does. And I was, I was confused because I believe that well, I, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing the work of Jesus. I'm, I am a fisher of men. I am serving in ministry. But I wasn't caught up on the work. I was caught up on the title. I was caught up on the role. I was caught up on what all of that meant. And for me, what I needed to understand was that being called a, being called a pastor, working in vocational ministry, getting a paycheck for that, having a title or an office, none of those things were necessary to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Him, and to do His work. All of them were like the smoke, the wind, heaven. Not bad things. That's, to be clear, nothing that the teacher calls hevel, he, ever, he never calls it that with contempt. It's not, a, it's not putting them down. It's just putting them in perspective. Being a, being a pastor and working in vocational ministry is a good and beautiful thing. I may someday do it again. But when I was fixated on it, trying to grasp it, I couldn't, and it only ever hurt me. So this could sound like a Sunday school kind of lesson thing, right? Uh, you guys probably know this Sunday school joke. The Sunday school teacher starts describing an animal. The animal is gray. The animal is fluffy, especially its tail. The animal collects nuts and it stores them. So one of the kids in the class says, yeah, I, I want to say that it's a squirrel. I know the answer is Jesus, though. I'm not really, I'm not really sure how, but... We're in Sunday school, and that's, that's what it is. And I, won't, I want to avoid that as much as possible, though I, I can only do so much. Um, it's not enough to just to say that we experience contradictions and challenges in life, and Jesus is the answer to those. It, it's necessary for us, for, for me now, to give you some examples, and then for all of us to consider how, how is Jesus able to say yes and to the contradictions and experiences of your life. Here are some, here are some, more, here are some examples from the ones that we've heard uh, earlier on in Ecclesiastes. Um, so work first, what I just said. Work is heavy. It, is, it, it's, it can be toilsome. Jesus is offering us new work. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that is not dependent on whatever title or role you have. Any of us can love our neighbor and invite them into the community of God. All things are tired, yes, and they're waiting for me. As I read earlier from Romans, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together and the pains of childbirth until now. Our very world, the nature that we live in, is waiting for Jesus to make it new. Our bodies, our eyes are never content with seeing, our ears with hearing, our bodies are never satisfied. We are thirsty. I'm, I am thirsty, even now. 
Jesus, when he met the woman at the well in Samaria, he said that very thing to her, I offer you living water, and everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. Jesus offers us spiritual life and renewal, a drink of cold water, refreshment that lasts, that is real. There's nothing new under the sun? Yes. And so I give you a new commandment, and I do a new thing. Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, who said that God, behold, is doing a new thing, making a way in the sea, a path for the mighty waters, rivers in the desert. Jesus, when He instituted the Lord's Supper, gave a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another, and by this they will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our only hope is in God's judgment, yes, and I am the judge. For as the Father has life in Himself, this is from John chapter 5, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to judge, because He is the Son of Man. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Yes, it is our duty to obey God. And Jesus is here to help us with that. Yes, our only hope is in God's judgment, and Jesus Himself will bring that judgment. The teacher of Ecclesiastes insists on his contradictions. Like a shepherd, he goads us with them. Everything is heaven, and yet the author is not without hope. How much more should we have hope knowing all of these things about Jesus? I personally um, have, am not, I'm not, it's not as if I left one vocation and now have found all of my meaning and purpose in a new vocation. I try not to think about vocation as the end-all, be-all and meaning of purpose of my life anymore, though I do love being a teacher right now, and it is, it is toil, but it does bring pleasure and joy, though not always. I, I do like a pop quiz. I do like a pop quiz. It's a favorite. It's a favorite of mine. And again, we're not supposed to look on the things that, that are heavy with contempt. One of the things that I, that I think of that presages in a more positive light than smoke or vapor is the sea breeze that we often are able to enjoy here in Beverly. If you've been outside on a hot afternoon, and all of a sudden the breeze coming off the ocean starts to pick up and move into your backyard, and the temperature drops, and you go, it just feels wonderful. Yes, it is literally ephemeral, and it is a breeze, and it is, it is breath, and, but it's, it is beautiful, and it is refreshing, though it may not last. We are to find joy and goodness in the things that are ephemeral, but we, are on, we can only find meaning, purpose in Jesus, and I personally am learning still to find my security and my purpose as His disciple and not as a pastor or a teacher or a father or any of the other things that are good and that I do. What about you? 
It's not enough to simply say that Jesus is the answer to all our problems, though it's, it's not wrong, but we want to we know how. So think on this. How? How is Jesus the answer to the contradictions that you are facing in life? How is Jesus affirming the challenge of those and saying, yes, and I'm making all things new? How does that make sense? How is that true in your life? That's something I can't necessarily answer for you. But it's not necessarily something you have to answer alone either. We are a community together. Uh, the pastors and staff are here to pray with you this morning, but also in our, in our community groups, our life groups that we have together, the fellowship we have with one another, we can help each other to see these, to understand and, and, and affirm each other in their challenges and to help each other look away from them and towards Jesus. So maybe this sermon has helped answer this. Maybe it hasn't. I hope that it encourages you. I hope it gives you hope. And perhaps it does goad you and poke you towards seeking a yes from Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are good. And you love us with an unfailing love. You are the only thing that, is, that, that can be new under the sun in which we live. You are the only thing that can do something new and that can bring purpose to the toil that we experience. Lord, I do ask that as we work this week, as we parent our children, as we tend to our houses, as we do any of the responsibilities that life requires of us, that we do have the opportunity to find some fulfillment and enjoyment in those things, that we would enjoy meals shared with friends and with family, that the things that may be temporary would also be temporary and brief but be blessings to us. But Lord, all the more that they would remind us of the eternal blessing and the eternal goodness that you bring. Lord, meet us in the midst of our contradictions and our challenges. Affirm, our, affirm us. Remind us that you are with us. Help us to see how you can answer and how you can lead us in the midst of them. We trust you to do that, and we pray in your holy name. Amen.